Welcome to the Wesley Memorial Podcast. Join us this Sunday at 1225 Chestnut Drive in High Point. Visit us on the web at wesleymemorial.org. Now here is this week's message. I believe 2 Timothy to be the last book that the Apostle Paul wrote before his death. The last book we have in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul toward the end of his life. We're going to look at a text uh, in the third chapter of 2 Timothy. Today and for the next three Sundays, Pastor Clark and I are bringing a, a short sermon series inspired by Timothy Keller's book entitled The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. We are in an age of great, great skepticism. And many people have a hard time embracing and allowing their lives to be changed by the verities, the truths of God's Word. The, the message this morning from Clark downstairs at 945 and from me is how we find and why we find the Bible to be a trustworthy guide for our lives. To get us into that topic, we're going to look at this text from 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. As you probably remember, 2 Timothy is a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy was Paul's young protege. Timothy was, most of us believe, to be the person that would take over Paul's ministry after Paul left this earth. So we're listening to Paul's last will and testament here in 2 Timothy. And particularly in those moments of our lives, what we say is very important. And that's why for me it's very significant to see what Paul chooses to talk about here to Timothy as Paul brings his last correspondence that we have in the New Testament. Listen closely to what he says in chapter 3. I begin reading at verse 10 of 2 Timothy. Paul says to Timothy and to us, Now you have observed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my suffering, the things that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, Paul says. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's one of the promises of the New Testament we don't pay attention to sometimes. Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Verse 13, but wicked people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And particularly pay close attention to verse 16 where Paul says all scripture is inspired by God. The three words there inspired by God is only one word in New Testament Greek and it's one word that we could hyphenate two words and make into God breathed. So Paul is saying here all is scripture is God breathed 
and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This is the Word of God for us, the people of God. The Bible still is the best-selling book in history. I suspect even most homes of pure pagans have copies of the Bible in them. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon said one time, though there may be enough dust on those Bibles to write the word damnation. The Bible still is the best-selling book in history. And it is the best-selling book in history because for 2,000 years, so many of us have found the Bible to be a trustworthy guide for faith, what we believe, and practice how we live. It should not surprise you to hear me say that I have a very high view of Scripture. I believe the Bible is trustworthy for faith and practice. That's the way we have said it historically throughout the history of the church. I I base my life, the way I believe, think, and the way I live, practice, on the best I can on the Bible because I receive it to be the Word of God. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says that we all, all of us in the Christian community, should be eager and ready and equipped to make a defense for the hope that is within us. I hope that all of us are ready and eager and equipped to make a defense of the hope that is within us, the faith that is within us. Part of what we're doing for four Sundays is to try to help us equip one another better to be able to defend the faith upon which we have based our lives. When I think about the trustworthiness of the Bible, I think about four specific reasons why I believe the Bible to be God-breathed, why I believe the Bible to be trustworthy for faith and practice. Let me try to quickly offer you these four reasons why I believe the Bible to be trustworthy and worth us basing our lives upon. Number one, like many of us throughout history, I am amazed by how, by how honest the Bible is. Because of the honesty of the Bible, I don't see it to be just simply some documents that were created by a community to help that community. And that's what you'll hear in skeptical quarters, that much of the Bible was created by Jewish people and then Christian people just to support what we want to support. If you look at the Bible, that, that view of the Bible is really untenable because the Bible's way too honest to be something that we as a community would have created because if we as a community would have just created these documents, we probably would not have created so many problems for ourselves. We probably would not have been so honest to include so many of our failures in these documents. 
When you look at the Bible, there are things in there, if we were just writing this to make our lives easy, to support our causes, that we would have left out. Because here we are 2,000 years later, still needing to explain some of these things that we find in the Bible. Let me give you some examples. The honesty of the Bible is amazing because it does make our heroes look so bad most of the time. For those of you that spent a year studying the Gospel of Mark with me recently, you heard me frequently refer to the disciples, particularly as they are presented in the Gospel of Mark as the duh disciples. Because throughout the Gospel of Mark, they don't come across looking very intelligent. They don't come across looking very faith-filled. They consistently are presented in a very poor light in the Gospel of Mark. Had those disciples just created the New Testament for our purposes, I think they would have made themselves look better and they would have erased many of their failures such as Peter's denial of Jesus. And the list could go on and on and on. We have a book filled with the failures of our heroes. And again, a group that would create a book for its own propaganda would never include those sort of things in the book. And we have so many things in the scriptures that present problems for us. If, again, we were creating it just for propaganda, we'd have left some of this problematic stuff out. Here we are 2,000 years later still trying to convince people of the, the reality, the truthfulness of the virgin birth. Just a few moments ago, you professed faith in the virgin birth. Had we created these documents, we probably would have left something like that out. We would not make up something so outlandish as the virgin birth. As, if we had created these documents just for our own propaganda, we wouldn't include stories such as John baptizing Jesus for the remission of sins. Because we profess that Jesus is sinless. So that presents a problem when we have in, in three Gospels... Jesus being baptized by John. If we had just written this book for our own propaganda, we would have had our guy, Jesus, baptizing their guy, John. But it's presented the other way because that's the way it happened historically. Had we presented this book, created this book just for our propaganda, we would never have had the initial witnesses to the resurrection being women. Women's testimony was not even admissible in the courtrooms of the first centuries and many centuries after that. But here we have women as the initial witnesses to the empty tomb. And again, we would not have created that as propaganda, so that has the feel of historical reality to us. When you look at all the honesty in the Gospels, particularly, it feels to many of us feels to many great scholars as eyewitness reports. Within, within the lifetime of some of the apostles, within the lifetime of many of the people who knew Jesus, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was being, were, were being received as authoritative for the life of the community. When the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says that the resurrected Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. That was almost a dare from Paul. 
to say, go find some of those 500 people. They're still around and ask them. The honesty that we find in the Gospels particularly and the Bible makes it feel like oftentimes it is an eyewitness report. Simple things like when Jesus was in the boat during the storm, he was asleep at the back of the boat on a pillow, on a cushion. When we look at the Gospels, we read things like there in the courtyard of the high priest where Peter betrayed Jesus, he did it around a charcoal fire. Not just a fire, but a charcoal fire. And we read in the same gospel, the gospel of John, that post-resurrection, when Jesus, when Jesus fixed breakfast for his disciples, the resurrected Jesus fixed breakfast for his disciples there on the Sea of Galilee, he fixed that breakfast on a charcoal fire. We have a lot of examples such as that that makes particularly the gospels feel like eyewitness reports for us. In the ancient world, they believed strongly in oral tradition. Oral tradition, the passing along of stories by human beings, preceded anything being written down in the ancient world. That's the way the ancient world did it. And that's why oral tradition in the ancient world was done so well. They knew how to repeat the stories, repeat the stories, repeat the stories, and then eventually write them down. And by the time they got written down, they were written down with a great deal of veracity and truthfulness because the ancient world knew how to do oral tradition. In the modern world, we tend to preference the written material. And we don't trust oral tradition. I know of one very skeptical New Testament scholar that teaches at a school here in North Carolina, a great school here in North Carolina, just so you know it was not Duke University. There's another of the great schools here in North Carolina. But when he introduces his 250 undergraduates every semester to the documents of the New Testament, he talks about oral tradition, but he always uses the example of the game that we used to play as children where we would get in a circle and we'd whisper something to each other and by the time you get to the end of the circle the story has been changed and he would he uses that story every semester to say that's why we can't trust what was eventually written down he's a pretty good scholar but there's better scholars who would point out that in the ancient world oral tradition was done with a great deal of perfection it wasn't done like we do that, that parlor game or that game that we do at birthday parties. When they passed something along in the ancient world, they passed it along with great precision. We have multitudes of evidence from the ancient world that shows that they, in the ancient world, preferenced oral tradition above written tradition. They preferenced the real live human being passing something along and then they only wrote it down when they did not have that option. That's why the apostles started writing down material as they were passing from the scene. That's why the apostle Paul wrote letters to churches when he himself could not go there. The ancient world knew how to do oral tradition. And that's why I think the best New Testament scholars point out with a great deal of evidence that we can trust the oral tradition that becomes the written documents of the New Testament. That's why the written documents of the New Testament particularly have the feel of being eyewitness reports. And that's why so quickly within 
the lifetime of Jesus and the apostles, particularly the four gospels, and then eventually the writings of Paul and a few others of the apostles came to be accepted as authoritative in the life of the community. So that honesty, that eyewitness honesty, who wrote things down just as they happened, is one of the reasons that many of us for 2,000 years have trusted and found to be trustworthy the scriptures. The second reason that we think we know we can trust the veracity of the scriptures is archaeology. Many of you know that I spent five years working with an archaeologist. I love the field of archaeology. That's why I'm very much uh, in love with traveling to uh, Israel. Uh, one of the best places to teach Bible there is on site in the Holy Land. Archaeology has consistently proven the veracity of the Scripture. You know, we can't get to 100% proof for about anything archaeologically from 2,000 years ago, but we can get to great, great, great probability. And archaeology continues to do that with Scripture. There were people who for decades since the Enlightenment used to say something like Sodom and Gomorrah was just a legend. Where archaeology now, thanks to the American archaeologist, archaeology now has found a site on the southern tip of the Dead Sea in modern-day Jordan at the bottom of the Jordan Valley, a site that very much is probably the site of ancient Sodom. And it's a site that was burned to the ground at about the same period that we would place the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah from the book of Genesis. That's just one example, and I could go on and on and on with examples from the honesty of the Bible, examples how archaeology supports the scriptures, but our time is limited this morning. Just one more, perhaps, from archaeology. When you read the Gospel of John in chapter 19, when Jesus appeared before Pontius Pilate, the Gospel of John, again, this smells like an eyewitness, the Gospel of John says that Pontius Pilate was there, and it gives you the Hebrew word in the English. You hear the Hebrew word. It gives you the Hebrew word, Gabbatha. It says that Pontius Pilate was there upon the Gabbatha, the pavement, the judgment pavement, the pavement of judgment. Just recently, that pavement has been discovered. Uh, is where the citadel of David is, near the Jaffa Gate in Jerusalem. It was part of Herod's palace in that day, in Jesus' day, and that's where Pontius Pilate would have stayed, and that's where Pontius Pilate would have tried Jesus, there upon the Gabbatha. Go with me to Jerusalem, I'll show you the Gabbatha that's been discovered by archaeologists over and over and over again. Archaeologists prove the Bible to be trustworthy in the history that it presents. Third reason why I feel the Bible to be trustworthy, and this really gets at the trustworthiness of the Old Testament, and it's this, because I've paid attention to the way in the Gospels that Jesus uses the Bible. And of course, the Bible for Jesus, the Bible for the New Testament community, was originally what we call the Old Testament. That's the only Bible they had. Paul used the Old Testament to preach Jesus. The early Christian community's Bible was what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. When you look in the Gospels and you listen to Jesus, Jesus says things such as the Scripture cannot be broken. In the Gospels, Jesus 
who I would assume everybody in the Christian community considers to be authoritative, Jesus refers to what we call the Old Testament as the Word of God, as the commandment of God. And in the Sermon on the Mount, and even the most skeptical of scholars love what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or little tittle, that's the smallest pieces of Hebrew writing, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law until it is fulfilled. So we see how Jesus reverenced and referenced the Bible in his day. And because of the way Jesus respected Scripture, I therefore respect Scripture. Jesus was always using Scripture to base his preaching upon. When they were asking Jesus about marriage, you can read it in Mark chapter 10, Jesus quoted Genesis chapter 2, what we would call Genesis chapter 2, when he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. So Jesus was quoting Genesis when Jesus talked about marriage. So the honesty, feels like eyewitnesses. The honesty, archaeology, the way Jesus used the Bible. Those are perhaps the three big reasons the Christian community throughout history have reverence, respected the Scriptures. But the fourth reason why I reverence and respect the Scriptures as the Word of God is because of the way the Scriptures have changed my life. Like millions of people throughout history, my life has been changed by Scriptures. You know, I, I, I really have never ran across anybody whose life had been dramatically changed by the Iliad or the Odyssey or Beowulf. And I love great literature, you know that. But I've never ran across anybody whose lives have been changed by the great literature. Their lives are impacted by great literature. I'm leading a group right now through the study of the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. And I know that the study of that great piece of literature will impact their life. But no piece of literature has ever changed lives like the Bible changes lives. And it's changed my life. I hear the voice of God here. I don't hear the voice of God in the Iliad and the Odyssey and Beowulf and all the great pieces of literature. I see the creativity of God reflected in the great literature. But when I come to Scripture, and this is our Christian conviction, when I come to Scripture, we can hear the voice, capital V, of God. We come to the Scripture not just to be informed, but to be formed. Because we experience God through the Scripture. And that's why... I've committed my life to ministry. I've especially committed my life to the intelligent, serious teaching of Scripture. This past week, we started our fall Bible studies here at Weston Memorial Church. And according to my records, right at 160 people were involved in serious, transformative Bible study here at Weston Memorial this past week. Our interdenominational Bible study on Monday mornings. Wow, Women of Wesley study on Tuesday mornings. Uh, on Wednesday, I'm leading a large group to the study of the book of Revelation. Uh, Clark is leading a men's Bible study with the book of Philippians. This past week, all of those Bible studies started and right at 160 people. Know that somehow in the Bible, 
they will find new life. And just as I have committed my life to the serious, intelligent teaching of Scripture, um, Christians throughout the world are seeking to hear the voice of God through Scripture. I know that since the Enlightenment of the 17th and the 18th centuries, and that was just yesterday in human history, but since the Enlightenment and the rise of the scientific revolution, many, many people have become very, very skeptical about the Scriptures. Many people see the Scriptures as just a collection of outdated fables with pre-modern wisdom and oftentimes even the source of many contemporary social problems. I disagree with that, obviously. There are people, though, on the other side in recent years who have tried to take the Scriptures and turn the Scriptures into a science textbook. I actually disagree with that also. You've got to read the Scriptures as they were meant to be read. You know, if you're reading poetry, you read it as you read poetry. If you're reading prose, you read it as you read prose. If you're reading history, you read it as you read history. All those different types of literature are found in the Bible. So you need to read the Bible as the Bible is intended to be read. We, we try to learn that as we study Bible together. I know that in our culture today, doubt and skepticism is so popular. And that's okay. I invite you to bring your doubt to Bible study. I invite you to bring your doubt into your church life. I just encourage you to do this with your doubt. Always doubt your doubts. We have created a culture where we've taken skepticism and made that the greatest truth. People accept no truth except the proof of their skepticism. I invite you to live your doubts, use your doubts, but allow your doubts to be a means to an end. Don't let them become an end in themselves. Allow your doubts to propel you to seek the truth. And obviously as a Christian, I believe that there is truth with a capital T. I believe that God is the source of truth. Truth with a capital T. God has spoken and we have what God has breathed here in Scripture. We know that truth, capital T, is found ultimately and preeminently in a person, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I know that we're in a culture that doesn't even believe truth exists most of the time, and the only truth they seem to find is the truth of their skepticism, and they never doubt their skepticism. But in the Christian community, for so, so many reasons, we have found the Bible to be authoritative. We have found the Bible to be trustworthy for faith, what we believe and how we think, and practice how we live. John Wesley, the founder of our movement, was a brilliant man. He was an Oxford scholar. He was fluent in Greek and Hebrew, and to a certain extent, Latin. He spent his life with a professorship at Oxford University. But he also was a warm-hearted evangelist. And even though he knew many, many, many books, and as a matter of fact, he told his preachers, if you aren't willing to be a voracious reader, you don't need to be a Methodist preacher. Even though he said that, he still referred to himself as a man of one book. And by that he meant the Bible. 
He knew that this book is in a category all by itself compared to all of the scriptures. We started a few moments ago singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God from Martin Luther. And of course, Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on the Romans is what brought new birth to John Wesley. And in so many ways, we have been influenced by Martin Luther. Martin Luther in 1521 was brought to trial before King Charles V. He was brought to trial as a heretic for, for teaching things that were not true. And there at the Diet of Worms in Germany, as he was being brought to trial, and he knew that the outcome of that trial, if he was convicted, could mean imprisonment or perhaps even death. He ended his remarks there before King Charles V with these words. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, Martin Luther said, there before King Charles V. And then many people say he ended with these words. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Now I know we're in a culture where many people are captive by their feelings. They are captured by their experience and their circumstances. They're perhaps held captive by their own reason. And those are all good things in their proper place. But I want to live and I want to die captive only to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me.